What's up, awesome Full Contact CEO listeners? This is Alex Magleby, co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks and Heritage Sports Ventures. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be bringing you our Captain America mini-series. No way! We'll be interviewing and catching up with several, several U.S. captains, U.S. Eagles, to hear about their sporting and business careers, what their thoughts are on the sports and rugby world, and of course, how Major League Rugby is transforming sports here in the United States and Canada. The good, the bad, and the great. So stay tuned for an exciting slate of guests and some incredible stories. Let's ride! Former U.S. National Rugby Team Captain. Team Captain. Head Coach and General Manager. General Manager. Now, the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now. Now. Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I am your host, Alex Magleby. I'm co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Joining me today is a good friend, Dan Lyle, former Eagle captain, Bath, Leicester player, the original Captain America, all-around amazing rugby player and great business executive. Today, you'll find Dan applying his trade on the screen for NBC Sports and as director for AEG Rugby. Welcome to the yeah, pod, Dan. big fan. First time uh, parents, apparently. So, uh, but yeah, looking forward to it, Alex. Yeah, this is good. Hopefully, first of many. Dan, we're just going to play a quick warm-up game. I'll say a word. You say the first thing that comes yeah, to mind. Totally. Cool. Bath. Um, thankful. French rugby. Um, flair. <laughs> World Cup. A destination. CRCs. Standard bearer. A future. Yeah, absolutely. And the last one, the future. Tons of opportunity. Exactly. How did you get into rugby? Uh, I- yeah, all the good people yeah. around the world. How that um, happened? I have. Uh, I, I saw it a little bit in. Well, n- not a little bit. I saw it a lot in college. I had some good friends that played it. To which you know, several of which are retired. You know, colonels and flag officers and multiple sports played for you know all armies and marines and navy teams and all that kind of stuff and pop up from time to time in Glendale. But I didn't play it in college because I was playing football. And then when I had an opportunity to try to play. A post-college in the NFL, I was, um, you know, there was no, I was trying to make the Washington Football Club in D.C. And there were no sports performance centers back then, right, Alex? There was, it was go to the Gold's Gym, play pickup basketball, or in my case, also at a first cousin playing rugby for the Washington Rugby Club, Mark Casey. And he said, come run around with us. And I did. And they were training at Gonzaga High School right downtown. It was Right when the Cherry Blossom Tournament was happening on the mall, you know, there was a bunch of stud ex-Eagle and international guys for the Washington Rugby Club. They they were touring. They were competitive. They were playing a style of, of rugby that was, you know, suited, you know, kind of my open chain, the way I played. And so, yeah, I, I stumbled into it and immediately. That's fantastic. And just... So everybody else knows, I mean, Dan, you grew up playing all different sports. It wasn't like you were just a football guy. I mean, you grew up playing soccer. Did you swim? I mean, what, what, what else yeah, did you grow up playing? Um, the checklist is long. Uh, the, um, but yeah, I didn't play football until I was a sophomore in high school when we moved to Texas from Kentucky. 
my dad was in the army. And so, you know, you know, you don't go to Texas and not play football, I guess is probably the way, but I was lucky that I was a soccer and basketball guy, mostly, although I swam and track and field and baseball, did a lot of stuff, um, you know, all the way into high school, but soccer and basketball were my two primary sports. Right. And how do you think that, that experience parlayed into your rugby, having had to kind of play in multiple different environments and, you know, different courts and different evasion games yeah. and all of that. Yeah. I, that. I, you know, I, I think you and I've talked about it. The, the, the it, I think it's a misnomer to say that you go from football to, uh, to rugby. Right. And, um, and that's, it's a common conversation. And, you know, the guy that the big headed guy behind you, you know, um, often says the same thing on a bigger platform than you and I have, right. Where, you know, there's some complimentary conversations in football and rugby, but they're two different sports. You know, the, what's more akin to rugby, what's more is basketball, is soccer, you know, you, you know, that open chain, you know, multidimensional movement, putting people through gaps, playing team defense, you know, in a continuity based conversation. So those were my first loves and, and my, you know, something I was playing all the way till I was 18 at a pretty competitive level. So football added that proprioceptive contact conversation and you know, spatial awareness and that those close quarter things, just like wrestlers have and things like that, you know, and or lacrosse players have or others. But yeah, I'm, I'm a big, big advocate that you don't have to, you know, zone into one sport and, and, and at an early age, you, you play multi, multi sports and, you know, that it, it's proven out every single statistic, every, the, the book range from, or anything, you know, hands down, hands down. it's multi sport. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and there's so many social um, pieces to that as well. You really shouldn't play year round, right? You, you know, you you need your body needs to you know um, rest. It needs to you know, try different things, and and so seasonality for rugby, you know, is almost a blessing. You know, um, we can it, for an American yeah. uh, and for American you know growth. You know, so we can play multi sports and play it. You know, at a time where you know, maybe we're, we're only challenging ourselves against a couple of sports. You know, I like to think of ourselves as complementary to most sports, you know, but, it, it, you know, Johnny or Susie's going to have to pick rugby yeah. over something else because there's just so much going on. But let's let's not do that year round. And, and, and you know, like like a lot of sports yeah. are trying and to let, do. And, and let's build the model so that we're not doing that, that that's not what we're setting up and that this is not how we're paying for good coaching is simply by having people do more so that those coaches can exist yeah. and have a living. Let's, let's figure out. We a have a real model, opportunity. Model to yeah. We have we a real opportunity there in, in not, not going down the rabbit hole of a pay to pay to play, you know, isolated sport. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that those sports are, are bad or, or not growing and things like that, but we can, kind of be a lot of things to a lot of people versus, you know, really narrowing our channel. And for a sport like rugby that doesn't have the the, the depth of, of understanding and media right now, it's got to be the place we go. Really well said. I and mean, certainly that was my high school experience, American football in the fall, wrestled basketball and skiing in the winter, and then in the spring rugby. And that was great. And that was a, a great way to, to learn the game, but be a part of a lot of other sports that shaped my character and my physical attributes and, and abilities that actually helped me be a, bit, be a better rugby player and vice versa. You grew up in a military family. Your dad's parents were in the military. So you traveled all over? Like, what was that, yeah, that the I case? Yeah, I lived in 13 places before I was 18. Um, 
Yeah, all around the world. Well, we li- we lived in Germany for five years, which really allowed us to, or me, to understand kind of the what America looked like or we looked like, um, you know, outside of our own shell. I think that's oftentimes, you know, something that we all need to reflect upon. You know, um, some of the, you know, some of the classes that they're they're teaching in in business and economics today is, you know, what, what does America look like to the rest of the world, you know, in a business format, right? And so we have to be able to do that, particularly in rugby, where it's so dominant, you know, in so many different ways, you know, but because we are an international sport, it's, it's something we should use as a, as a, uh, as a positive, you know, in the growth of the game, but we have to understand what everyone else looks like and and what they look at us. So, uh, so that was really a, a key to me. So I was able to kind of, you know, have my head on the swivel early in my life, you know, from, a, from, a, you know, from that dynamic. Yeah. And then, um, and really, I guess it, it allowed me to um, understand, you know, what friendships and, and, but, you know, and turnover and, you know, quick, you know, being, understanding, you know, what, what different teams were like and different environments. But um, yeah, I mean, there's also something to said about growing up in hometown, living with, you know, the same people, you know, lifelong, you know, rooted friendships, growing up around your family and things like that. So I guess I didn't have that. Um, I don't pine for it because I, I, I often say you can't, you can't want something that you either can't do or never had, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, so, yeah. but um, yeah, it was, it was unique and I'm thankful for it. And certainly the, the military side of it, um, you know, and, entrench me in, in, in a level of respect for, you know, our armed forces and my family and just kind of the freedoms that we all Yeah, and we're very fortunate to have because people like your your, your father and, and your parents and everything else. It's, um, we live in a pretty special place, right? But understanding the context of that, to your point, and how we fit in and um, being aware that we're just a part of a bigger world. And I think rugby encapsulates that so well. Going back to being at VMI, playing football, you leave, you're in DC, you pick up rugby to become a better American football player. Uh, how do you get seen? How do you get cited? What happened yeah, from there? Um, we, as I said, Washington um, Rugby Club was a really good team, and we were we went to the national championships for sevens and some some two dudes named one named Ed Tram and one named Jack Clark, but all the rugby folks, obviously everyone knows who Jack Clark is from since, but Ed was a, the manager of the U S team and hall of famer himself and recently passed away. And his son, Eddie, you know, I played with and you, you and I played with him. He's a, was a Cal rugby yeah. guy. Um, they saw me at Kasha Hawken, you know, when, when sevens was there for a few years, I was just kind of this athlete raw to the game, but kind of understood intrinsically where I needed to be and why maybe I was, I think some people, I, I was palming people off with the ball in my hand versus just my hand or, yeah. or I was uh, running. Yeah. Just hold up your hand. Yeah, running, man. You running, just did that. Yeah. Like, like, running <laughs> things, you know. So, yeah. So I've seen it and, um, Jack instantly said, Hey, um, why don't you come train with us? Let's spend a year um, developing you. You know, you're not really going to play, you know, too much. You know, we're going to, but we're all going to send you on some sevens. So I went to like Tulum and, and 
it, that's in obviously France and, and Taiwan and yeah. Kuala Lumpur and a few things that you, you we bumped around it. So all those things yeah. uh, early to, you know, um, get in the middle of it. Right. Um, and um, so was able to do that and then quickly got into the U.S. team within, you know, a year um, and got my first cap against Ireland and Lansdowne Road, which, yeah. Which Ireland, was, right? You know, if you want, you know, if you want to do something, you know, um, for the first time, that's a pretty good place to to do it. And you know, so to do it. That's my first cap was on our, our tour in uh, the fall of two thousand, that Scotland Wales tour. That my first cap was the new Millennium Stadium yeah. at the time against Wales. Absolutely, pretty magical. Yeah, great place. Yeah, it was very magical actually. So you start you start learning the game, being challenged. It's you get your first cap 96, 94, 94. How did you then get from yeah, yeah. 94, 94, then 96 is when you went yep. overseas. Yeah. So I, I, uh, you know, the commodity back then for in America was sunshine, right. You know, and I, you know, the, you can't, you couldn't train, you can't, you know, somebody that's living in new England, you can't train year round, you know, outside and hence, hence why well, in high school you went to skiing and and wrestling and things like that. So, yeah. so, um, it was kind of go West young man, you know, conversation. So I went to Aspen, you know, um, after, you know, after about a year and a half in DC, I played a full yeah. summer season back then it was pre super league and they had a wonderful dynamic, you know, so um, awesome. they played a lot of touring teams and all things like that. But then obviously you had the same winter issues, right. In Aspen. Um, so I looked at yeah. I love I loved yeah. my time in Aspen. That was one of the best experience rugby experiences right. I've had. It, for sure. You know, yeah. back then it was very much uh, um, the immersion technique, right? Just like um, you you did, you know, going to New Zealand or going to other places. Yeah. You need to kind of feel what that feels like. You need to know that and it's not. You can't just do it for a week or ten days like we do when you tour. You have to literally understand, you know, the dynamics of what that what what the day-to-day of a sport is right and so you need to go to environments where that was in, in america at that time aspen was like that you know it was very much you know you know i'm not saying it wasn't a complete fun time too but it was you know it was all things yeah a place it was all things rugby. Um, and then and then yeah. uh you know the go west philosophy kept going on to be able to train year-round so i i looked at both old blue blues you know for san francisco and on back and um, yeah. and just kind of had a little bit of vibe down in Ombak. So I went to Ombak and, and played and we won the 15th championship and seventh championship yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And, and it was really good team and, and great environment. Great, you know, Eddie IU, Bing Dawson coaching and, you know, you know, too many wonderful players and, and obviously living in San Diego is, yeah. you know, relatively, uh, yeah. And, and they, they helped players out, you know, back then it was, you know, what can you do part-time while you're trying to play rugby and maybe trying to get to the next level? Yeah. And then, so you start playing for on back, do really well, still playing for the national team. How one of the first Americans, not the first to be contracted in, in Europe, but uh, how did that happen? Yeah, we, we played up in Canada and we beat Canada for the first time in Canada. And there was a guy named David Jenkins who was a scout for Bath. As the game was going professional, they, you know, people had feelers out there. Of course, Dave was like a pharmaceutical, medical, you know, Brit that was just over, yeah. you know, just doing all this, you know, that back then. And maybe some of our your your other questions will will get onto this. But um, 
he saw they were actually looking for locks and of course we had some guy named luke gross you know on the team and, and um so they were looking for somebody and, and i had a had a really good game and he told john hall who was the former lions in england and all this stuff who was the director of rugby at bath hey this guy luke gross is pretty good and obviously luke ended up signing for harlequins um but this guy dan lyle was also pretty good you might want to you know, take a look at them. So we were on one of those epic Canada, Japan, Hong Kong trips, trips. Yeah, and so I literally me. went there, Asia. I flew back around the world to London. And then I had went to, took the train, took, took <laughs> so the train to Bath. And um, it was the off season. So there was literally like nobody there, you know, except for the thing. And they said, hey, we can offer you kind of a one year kind of a half year at the time, you know, non-guaranteed, you know, very much like football was, but it was at least I didn't have to make it to the third game of the season. And the irony of that was Gary Zahner, who was the special teams coach of the Minnesota Vikings had, and uh, you know, I've got, I've got a Minnesota Vikings contract on the wall there, but the, um, yeah, he saw me playing because remember we were about, we were on Fox Sports, you know, international or net back then. Yeah. And he said, Hey, I remember that guy yeah. playing in college. You know, he, he was halfway decent. So they invited me up to Minnesota um, at the exact same time. Yeah. No, same no, within six 96. weeks of, of that whole conversation. Yeah. And they said, Hey, are you, uh, are you interested? And I went up there and Danny Green was the coach and Mike Tice was the tight end coach and who became the head coach year, years later. And I had the best workout I've ever had in my life for uh, ever, yeah. ever. Yeah. I'm, yeah, and I'd been playing rugby yeah. and I, you know, it was just like this, you know, everything, everything about football, you know, as a receiver, I was a tight end for those that don't know, as a receiver, but yeah. also just kind of as a proprioceptive, you know, you know, I was catching everything, you know, like with my little finger, I was, I ran, uh, ran yeah. faster than I've ever run, you know, yeah, it was just like, you know, yeah. it was just crazy. Right. So, um, they were like, here, here's a contract, you know, and, and I had, you know, so anyway, I chose the, the bath contract, all my American friends, college guys who were like, well, you're nuts, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So crazy, but it wasn't as yeah. much money as people think it was, you know, you know, back then, um, and it wasn't guaranteed, right? And and I and I tra- I've been traveling around the world, playing and playing in big stadiums and representing the U.S., which I think, in a sense, for me, having not gone into the military but had done all the training and all this stuff, all that stuff kind of uh, you know yeah. helped me kind of make that decision that maybe the rugby pathway was the right one. So, but you're coming into an environment that hadn't been professional for 150 years. And it's suddenly 95 World Cup, a switch happens, and we're going to start paying players. And these are clubs, local neighborhood clubs. And suddenly, like, we're going to turn, we're going to turn this on. How did, like, how did that experience go? How did that even work? Well, there's a great, there's, a, it yeah, it didn't for a long time. The, 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 you know, the, there's all kinds of lessons. You know, the, so the, the, the first thing I would say to anybody that's a quasi sports executive or interested in this topic, read Mark McCambridge's uh, America's Game, right? Which is, um, it, it talks about the, it talks about the NFL from inception. It talks about those, those clubs that were, 
you know, entrenched in small, you know, towns in America. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, so that, that, that is a great uh, analogy or example, Alex of, of, yeah, they were, you know, they were, you know, clubs that were, you know, you know, that came from communities. Right. And um, I guess what I had um, that I was able to bring that maybe helped me kind of get through the, maybe the lack of rugby pedigree or understanding at the time was I was a, I was a finished professional and comparatively to everybody else, right? I, I knew how to study film and do my playbook and show up on time and do the weights and do all that, you know, and, and speak in front of people about, you know, what the defensive structure is of, you know, uh, what we're going to do and, you know, all that, all of those things right. that, you know, the professionals have to learn and, 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 you know, and and even today, the modern professional has to learn, right. You know, it's not, it's not good enough to be, you know, a talented individual. But you had that experience as a, you know, as a college player. If you play for a good high school um, sports team, right. You you are in America, you you automatically know that. I mean, your coach's job is dependent on, you winning or losing, even in high school, you know, let alone you know, the club structures yeah. of today, right? So, so there's a pressure, yeah. and it, but that, that also puts a, um, you know, experience level on an American, you know, in that. So you're kind of know that, you know, you're as we always say, we're, you're imminently coachable as well. Generally, you come to that level, yes, yes, um, and, and that and that really um, um, put me in a position where I could absorb the rugby you know, and, and really kind of be that sponge, um, versus I didn't, and all the other guys, you know, actually were learning from me, you know, and funny, the other guy was Jason Robinson, the, those that know rugby, because Jason Robinson yeah, had come down right. from Wigan and from league, league been professional. Yeah. and so, you know, he and I were the two, you know, the two professionals on a lot of ways. And so, um, he, he was, uh, you know, not just a remarkable player, but off the field, knew all the nuances of all that stuff. So did it really go from like a Tuesday, Thursday night to, okay, we're going to do this five days a week. We don't know volume. So we're just going to do lots of volume. Yeah. Uh, play a match on Saturday, probably go just as hard Saturday night. Cause it was that time of amateurism, go hard, play hard. Yeah, all, all the same stuff that we're learning, you're learning. We're all learning from an MLR perspective was, was learned, you know, in those first, you know, all those years as well, right? You had PE teachers becoming coaches, CEOs of milk product companies and greeting cards companies becoming owners and, you know, and and cricket and soccer guys. And, you know, it was just a mix. Physios that had never been professional that were coming out of hospitals, you know, that, you know, so gyms that would make your junior high team, you know, not want to turn up, right. Just, you know, you know, facilities that were just incredibly poor, right. Um, You know, comparatively, all that stuff was built together And, and, you know, it was, but it was very American and from the sense that the, the, the owners were the entrepreneurs, right. They were the owners, they were putting money into these clubs And, you know, and it was a sink or swim mentality for a lot of people, you know. Um, And um, so all of that stuff put pressure uh, in places that some clubs had never felt. Um, And I think there's six or seven clubs that I played against in in my eight year career in the premiership that 
don't exist in the premiership or first division anymore. You know, so, you know, yeah, yeah you know, they have, they have some yeah. aggregate of, of, of the Richmond, London, Scottish aggregate that happened. And, the, you know, yeah. the, all of these teams, the, the, that West Hartlepools and Bedfords and, you know, promotion, relegation, all that, all that vulnerability was, was there. And so there was a ton of, of that era, as well as kind of the MLS era over here that, you know, if, if really pursued from a data and learn lesson perspective, I think could help us all jump over years of, of not just, not just pain and suffering, but, but, you know, just kind of development and, and opportunity. Yeah, lessons every day there that we can go back to and grab a hold of. And you, tell you, what were the revenue sources for these clubs? Was it ticket sales? Was there, were there media plays? Because it's also a time where, you know, the direct TVs of the world and suddenly you had a lot more distribution. So people were chasing content. So more dollars were potentially available. Yeah. What, what were the revenue sources for, you know, a young professional bath? And, I, and I, the was, others I was really time? lucky is early on. Um, maybe because this all the background that, that you and I have already talked about from my personal history, I was able to, you know, have conversations with people. And so I got on the Players Association as the club rep and then the executive really early. So understanding those first collective bargaining agreements tied to media contracts, you know, understanding the first player welfare and insurance, yeah. all that stuff. And so it was literally the, the first salary cap was tied to the first broadcast deal, which was with Sky, you know, a nexus time where, where, where yeah. that, that platform, we're now in the nexus of digital meets linear. So that was the satellite, you know, meets, you know, cable side of things. So Sky <laughs> comes in and, and says, Hey, we'll sponsor. And really England had the Sky deal. So they, the, so that's where the clubs and the union worked together a little bit to leverage that deal. And the, the, the net net was, the 1.1, 1.2, if I'm remembering right, million pounds per team distribution for the media contract was the first salary cap, you know? And so they, they yeah. modeled it after a, a functional. So you would also sink or swim in your own club based upon your own ticket sales, your own sponsorship, you know, and it, it, there was a right. lot of centralized, you know, there was a title sponsor of the league and all of the other stuff developed you know, over time that, that, you know, that is, some of those things are happening you know, over the last two years, you see ha happening quicker or more thoughtfully within MLR, right. You know, centralized media models, centralized sponsorship models that everyone already knew about, but who's going to do it? How is it going to happen? And what does it mean? You yeah. know, do we have data to back things up? So all that stuff was happening at the same time over there. And so we have massive lessons on the, on the business side that we've been able to learn and can learn from that era of professionalization of rugby on the field. There seems to be, um, at the time and now we're seeing with, with our generation effectively coming out of that, there are a few guys who are, are struggling with potentially post-concussion type dementia, um, you know, when you were over there, was what was that environment like on that side of things, on the performance side, on the player welfare side? Yeah, it, it, like everything else, it evolved um, organically, and then it and then it became um, systematic, right? And I think that's probably how it happens in most places, in most sports, and most in business, right? From a startup, yeah. you know, um, mentality um, to where you. you you shook a, um, a head injury off like you shook a, 
uh, a blow to the thigh off. Right. And, yeah, and it became, totally. it became, okay, well, that's, that doesn't make sense, right? These are, you know, different parts of the body that one's a little bit more valuable than the other, but, um, you know, maybe back then, and maybe that's, you know, we can think of that in American football terms that a, a knee is worth more, more, is more valuable than a, than a, than a head, you know, and obviously all of that's, all of that right. has been reversed, you know, uh, rightfully so. And, you know, the systematic approach to, you know, player welfare um, is a everyday um, um, challenge. Um, and I think that where where the global game is is not in the right place is that it's too it, there's too much too much too often and it's not just from a player welfare perspective it's also from a commercial perspective a development perspective everything in between just like we talked before if there's a seasonality conversation you know to to a limited awesome window you know and then some development afterwards great it's the same thing with with medical player welfare, it all blends together. And, and the game um, is, that's the, I think it's biggest challenge is to, is to try to find that balance. Well said, you know, and just even our training volume at the time, and we were running like a 5k in addition to all the contact and acceleration and decelerations and trainings. Like we were doing fitness testing as we were, you know, the, there was just high the, volume. The, the craziness. The time. Yeah. More yeah. is more. Uh, more I, is I often say, the people say, well, it's, you know, we're, there's more and better and all that kind of stuff now. I'm like, yeah, I understand that completely and, and where, where things are going. But yeah, yeah you, yeah, so you brought a 5k for time, you know, in the, you know, and then you, then you yeah. do like, you know, 19 sets of shrugs and squat at times with heavy, then you run some sort of a, yeah. a, a you know, a, a cardio beep, you know, test after that. In between yeah. that, you probably had done a scrum and a line out session. Then you were going to do a full team session afterwards, you know, fo- yeah, with full, full, full on, on, you know, it's just yeah, everything. Between. So <laughs> yeah, it was. And then, oh, by the way, we're going to do that Monday through, you know, Friday morning. And then you're going to go play on the, on the weekend and do that 43 times in a club season and then play some international rugby on top of that. Yeah. I mean, on top of that. Yeah. On top of that with all the travel yeah. and everything else, you were part of, you were a leader on a 98 team, right? That won the Heineken cup. Why was that team? So um, we were still um, coming off. Bath was the best team uh, arguably on the planet club wise, you know, for 10, 15 years, before I got there, right? And um, that culture, that um, player-driven, that, you know, you know, put the ball, you know, in space type of a team, um, uh, you know, coach-driven, but very player-centered model um, was, was there. And then when I came right into that, and that's the type of person I was, you know, um, and so I was able to live in the, in the middle of that. That also was an evolution. We had some great young talent coming through at the time that the, the guys that were some of the spine to the 2003 World Cup team um, and others. Um, so it was almost, um, I said it on a podcast around the European Cup when they were doing the 25-year history conversation, um, that we kind of knew 
that it was ours to take. You know, that, that sounds arrogant, right? But it was almost one of those things where you just you knew that that was the culmination for a lot of the guys that were of that previous era. And then some of the new guys it was kind of like, that was our thing. And um, once we got it, um, you know, we, you kind of lost the old and started the new and some of the new kept us in a good nucleus place of roundabout top of the league. But um, it's really kind of the evolution from there that is what Bath is, meaning that they haven't won anything really from that because the identity uh, of the team, the, the venue, uh, meaning the home ground, a lot of other factors that we know goes into business, you know, um, coaches, players, it hasn't been a kind of a solid nucleus for, for since then, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Cohesion. Cohesion. But, but of, a, 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 a quick, a quick story uh, on the European cup was um, we stayed uh, in Bordeaux. We played in Bordeaux against Brive at the Saint, the, the, the mm. Chateau Saint-Emilion, which those that are wine lovers will know that it's one of the top vineyards in the world. And we win the, we win it. We go back and there's, a couple of missions, Michelin star chefs and at, you know, 2 AM and, yeah. you know, cooking omelets and popping bottles of, of, of stuff that, you know, so if I knew the, you know, anyway, it was, a, you know, epic moments, not just the 1918 yeah. final, final over, you know, that type of game, but just the whole experience. It was just amazing. Amazing. It's fantastic. And you very quickly, you, you back on the national team horse, we had the 99 world cup and, you know, built into 2003 and there were some really good U.S. teams at the time, you know, kind of looking back, what made some of those teams good? Why, how could have those, some of those teams been better and what can our modern Eagles learn from that era, our era? I would like to, I would like, I don't know, to be able to see historically some of those really good athlete and players from the 70s and 80s, some of those ones from those 90s and early 2000 teams, and then some from the 2000s and into the 2010s and beyond teams. I, I'd like to see us kind of a side by side data analysis. I'd like to kind of understand if it, you know what you know what what a loose head looked like, and, and I'd like to do it both not just from men's side, men's and women's sevens and fifteens. Like to see the data of where we are because. If we don't have world-class players performing right. on world-class levels, we're not going to we're not going to get anywhere, right? You know, so and th and then so that means we have to increase the athlete pipeline and and pedigree and but there's 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 a the athlete pie and then there's the rugby pie, right? Um, so with that right. as the backdrop, we had some really good we we had some really good combination. If there's a hundred points in the athlete pie and a hundred points in the rugby pie. We had some guys that were, you know, 60, 70, 80, you know, if not in one in both, you know, in, in a few positions, right? And yeah. You look at that forward pack, you, Haji, Luke, um, Philippe, just the size Korch, alone. I mean, Court Schubert, Court Schubert Alec Parker, Court, you know, yeah. you know, uh, Mike McDonald, yeah. Kirk Kasijan, you know, um, you know, look, we have we have an amazing depth in right. front row right now, you know. Um you know, and some dynamics, mm -hmm. dynamics, but you know, we don't, you know, the, the back, the back five, back is, five you know, the so yeah, we just had some really good and, and that allows me to answer the question a little bit more kind of tactically is that we became 
we became solid in the scrum, which we never were before, not to the point where we were going to stay in the scrum for a long period of time, um, because you still have the play together, you know, you know, you know, technique side, yeah, all that kind of stuff. But it was like, okay, yeah. we, we can get in, we can hit, we can get the ball out and we're not going to go backwards at a rate of lots, you know, and, and we, but we were, we were dynamic in the line out, you know, and we were dynamic in the loose, you know, in a sense that we were going to win the contact area. And the funny thing is the contact area is the, probably the most significant determinant to winning and losing games out of anything. You could put penalties, you could put turnovers, you know, you could put efficiency uh, inside certain zones in there, but that area, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you've got speed of ruck, if you've got physicality, so right, we had we had a lot yeah. of that, you know. Um, now it didn't mean that we had a lot of that every game, because got, a lot of guys were playing amateur rugby. Didn't mean that because of injury. Yeah. It didn't mean we, we chopped and changed. You know, some of our our backline probably was the least consistent in my time, right? Of who was there or having kind of an yeah. equal pedigree. Of, and it's always the back's fault, right? right. So, no, I was about to say, yeah, so, of course it is. Yeah, it's the back's fault. Yeah. I think they're good looking. Exactly. Come on, exactly. Look at us. Come on, right? Uh, <laughs> <God>. Yeah. <laughs> there were some good teams. So you retired after was it the '03 World Cup? Did you play? Yeah, one I, I was so on. You, I was. I, that's when I switched to Leicester Cup. and was there, and um, so I played a few games. And yeah. the World Rugby for the first time was writing high performance grants, something that you and I both know really well. And right. so I yeah. I left Leicester to come back and take a position with USA Rugby to write. In essence, I wrote it, I wrote I wrote Nova, Nova you know, which was for those sudden burst of energy, yeah. energy of and it's it's kind of like what the the Raptors meets what Dan Payne's kind of doing right now, kind of what some of the MLR clubs right. are doing. So it was a and and literally where rugby said nope if you haven't played rugby since you were five or six years old, yeah. you're, you can't play rugby at a high level ever. So, yeah. The irony of that so, entirety. Wasting, uh, yeah, near on, near on 20 years. And, and the point of Nova was just to take, was say, yes, it's going to take us time to develop rugby athlete pathways. Let's make sure we're doing that. As importantly, more importantly for the short and medium term, let's make sure that we're finding a way for elite level athletes to learn the game in a good environment so that they can then quickly become competitive, right? The idea of 10,000 hours was, you know, it's a fallacy and let's actually um, make sure that we're, we're, we're allowing those opportunities, right? Effectively, yeah, that's what well, it, 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 it would I mean, articulate more, more, yeah, but articulated right from the beginning was partly inside and partly outside of our pathways, right? So you were taking, you were taking the best and the brightest from internally and mixing them with an athlete pedigree that might not be, you know, gestating quickly enough over here. Right. Ultimately, as articulated in the, in the, in the paper, it was about that the internal slowly overtakes the external, right. Meaning the external of that, because more athletes, more moms and dads, more athletic directors, more decision makers are, are accepting rugby. And so the, the funnel in both quantity and quality, it becomes better, right? And you know that's where that's where 
we, we have to have a, a level of honesty and intellectual honesty is versus, you know, it's not lie, cheat, steal with each other, but intellectual honesty of yeah. where is our, that's why the data of what our athletes looked like in the past, what they look like now, you know, both in those two pies, what are, what we're pumping out of our current systems, you know, be, be those, the all-star teams, high school all-star teams from each state, you know, collegiate All-Americans, MLR academies, all that stuff has got to have a, um, you know, a, a, a report card. Yeah, what we see, this is anecdotal, but, you know, having seen it now, coaching and otherwise 20 plus years is on college campuses. And a lot of these programs, we had a lot more of the random jock participating, coming into the sport. You know, Luke Gross, basketball player, coming into his collegiate rugby team. And there were opportunities for him to come in where he could where get repetitions and everything else, uh, where now we've done a really good job of having some high school players that play and they can immediately, the turnkey, be ready for college college play. And so the, incentive, the incentives have seemed to be, let's get rugby players uh, specifically, who are ready to go turnkey for college. That then... They take up the reps, you know, that random jock isn't getting, you know, the repetitions that perhaps once happened. And so four years later, we're not seeing those type of athletes in mass get, you know, put into the pipeline who, you know, are world-class athletes that, you know, just need a few years to, to learn the game, you know, that can then augment a traditional pathway of, of playing rugby. But I just, I, I'm not saying at the college level, we're producing the same type of athletes, we're producing better rugby players. Um, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, except for if there's only a certain resource, which is game time and training time, and that's going to one and not the other. That's inevitably uh, what's going to happen. So there's got to be other ways yeah, for us to do at, that. at all levels. Um, and the American sports complex is easily defined. It's after school, after school programs, right? You know, and, and clubs. That, that facilitate into middle school and high school scholastic, that then facilitates into college, that then parallels into professionalism. So I've, I've said that loud and clear to a lot of people that MLR was, was the missing ingredient for the American sports complex. You know, A, it's entrepreneurially driven. Yeah. You know, B, it fits the, the pro model. And then sit, sitting next to that is your Olympic slash international competition, right? That's how all, all Americans yeah. see and do sport at each of these levels. The simplicity of it all is that we need to do a better job or more efficient job at recruiting and retaining. Right. And that's a quality and quantity conversation that everybody can look at and contribute to. So that's 95%, right. That's we're looking at 95% drop off from high school rugby athletes to college rugby athletes and a 95% drop off from college to right. so, club. So right? you just articulated the, the quantity conversation, you know, in that, is there a quality conversation or do we need to supplement that, you know, or do we just need to increase the overall funnel? I would say that we need to do all of those things. Right. And, and it's kind of like where people, a lot of people debate because American rugby is, is a 45 year old startup and we're fits and starts and grow and strengths. And we tried a lot of things and all that kind of stuff is that if you're, if you're sitting there debating with yourself that it's a centralized model or a decentralized model, you have to say to yourself, it's both. You have to, because there is, there are nuggets of information, centralized 
distribution, player welfare, kid welfare, coach welfare, referee welfare, all that stuff that, that needs to have some sort of a hub structure to it, right? But it also needs to be, you know, hearing what it's out in the community. It also has to be disseminated in the community. It has to be structured, you know, based upon that Michigan's different than Southern California and, you know, all that stuff. So exactly. you have to do both, right? And so each of those, but the recruit and retain strategy of going into a elementary or middle school and teaching physical education, 45 minute sessions all day, which a lot of clubs have done, or go to a YMCA and do a, and do a, you know, a, a, a two week camp or a one week camp in the summertime. What, where do all those players go, you know, that have now touched rugby? What do they do? Exactly. You know, that is not a challenge. That is a must do. That is a must do. And what ultimately that does is it creates enough volume and enough groundswell to where you become institutional, right? We're a personality driven sport in America. If if the coach if, what do you mean if by a that? coach at your at your local youth team left, then uh, right, right, right. where would it go? Where would it go? It dies, right? yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Right. We have Based to institutionalize yeah, totally you know more dot edu, more after school, more, you know, more of that. And, and, to, and, and the funnel Systemic, yeah. then becomes wider, you know, and deeper, you know, right? So the quality and quantity conversation, yeah. you know, I always say, I always said, if, if you're going to the job in, in American rugby, if you have numbers and standards as your two things, right? How many more people are playing the game and to yeah. what quality and level, you know, that feels like the very well said yeah. the right balance. It might be there's probably better articulated people than me to be able to do that. But that's almost like the nocturne. You can ring the bell, you know, each day. Yeah, this morning I was with the Quincy Chamber of Commerce and just you know talking and connecting with the local and regional businesses. Uh, but there's also some you know international businesses there, the stops and shops of the world and everything else. But that was exactly what we were talking about. Is this is what needs to happen? This is what we're aiming to do. Uh, you articulate it much better than I, but quality and quantity, you know, numbers and standards, more participants and the experience for those participants is better because there's better coaching, better identification opportunities for higher honors, better fields, better medical, the whole thing is absolutely right. Speaking of the business of the sport, you developed US sevens, you know, I, I played um, in that tournament early, mid 2000s, and we had a, a few people watching us. It's great to play at home. That was um, in AEG's now building, uh, the old StubHub, Home Depot, whatever it was called at the time. But for 10 years, you, you, you built that. Um, can you walk us through that business and what that was like and that evolution? The USA 7s, now LA 7s, it is, from an American perspective, an easily identifiable pathway, fan engagement, media, you know, and player development all wrapped into it's the perfect sevens is the perfect place for us to either start and or finish you know with the all shapes and sizes 15s dynamic for boys and girls men's and women's playing it's it's you know monster role mega role right in the middle of all that right and so we are we are both sport country and we advocate for both. And the LA7s on an annual basis as part of a World Series allows us to have a mini Olympic Games, um, which is festival, fan, and athletes 
every year and bring it brings so accessible and, and it's, yeah, so it's accessible. the 20 minute American attention span per games. It's the, you know, it's the, it's the, I, I can do a lot of things in the day and, and see a lot of sport, but also see some friends. And it's, it's all the things that we kind of, that this generation, you know, that's current, current, and even our generation of wanting to, you know, come together as a reunion or come together in a festival environment is the right thing. Um, so, it, it, it's grown because organically, you know, people have seen that and touched it. Right. Um, the, the, the issues is all have always been, um, that it's been a standalone, you know, that, that the, the rest of the American calendar is completely undefined. It, it, it needs other partners. It needs yeah. other, you know, uh, foundational event pillars. It can't be the only signature event, you know, the, the rest of the world know, knows that, right? The, the seven series is being looked at from a radical overhaul of how do we make it both global and and a growth dynamic for players and for fans and media, all that's there. But it, to me, it's it they can't be isolated and they can't be standalone, and that's the that's the balance moving forward um, that um, that we're challenged with and, and the global game. Yeah, and so you're running that now as part of, um, you're directing Anschutz AG rugby, you know, sports entertainment, um, behemoth. What, what is AEG rugby doing? What are, what are your goals? Uh, what are you guys setting yeah, up? It's a great question and, and probably need to do a better job of talking to people about who we are. You know, arguably we're not, just leading, we might be the largest sports entertainment company on the planet. You know, we have music, sports, and facilities. Twenty-five stadiums alone, ticketing. ticketing you know, every, yeah, Twenty-five ticketing. NFL meets MLS, big stadiums in America. Probably three or four of the venues that Australia would use. You know, down in, you know, in Australia, the new Hong Kong stadium that's being built, Kai Tech, and that the Hong Kong Sevens will be in. All over Europe, of course, uh, South America, and of course, all over the U.S. Um, and we own teams in in multiple different continents. You know, from the Kings and the Galaxy, we just sold the Lakers, um, our, our percentage of Lakers, but we own the Staples Center where they play. Um, and so we 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 are my bosses, um, as we're a global company, kept as they said, bumping and running into rugby in, in different ways from, from venues to naming rights to, to teams. And they said, Hey, this is a sport. And let me remind everybody that the major league soccer trophy is called the Anschutz cup, right? So the, the inception of MLS, you know, um, and was Phil Anschutz and some of my bosses are, were, you know, part of that whole concept, part of that whole, 1998 to 1994 soccer world cup the inception of the league in 96 and really the stick to itiveness that that the lessons learned that we talked about at the beginning you know between so mls and some of the prof- professional rugby mlr we need to supercharge that conversation but the uh we so we are we, we are wanting to create content in america that supports you know, the, the, the American sports complex, that, that American rugby has signature events. It has depth in its fan engagement. It has depth in its broadcast structure and its sponsorship, that it has data and, and, and a synchronization that feels American, looks American, 
but absolutely is plugged into the America to the global strategy. And then abroad, we have right. we can plug ourselves into and we are we have into a number of facility conversations, content conversations, and so forth. Um, so yeah, we, we're. We're experts in the sports, entertainment, and media side of things. Um, we're very agnostic. Um, we work with just about everybody, and, and from broadcasters to sponsors to you know even what people think of competitors, um, in order to get things done. And yeah. yeah, we're we think that we get ahead of the curve, and, and that's okay. where we are now. We see rugby as Look, soccer is on a scale that it's just you know beyond compare in a lot of ways. But we see it as that that has can have a similar uh, trajectory uh, as soccer in America if done the right way. And perhaps more quickly, because we can learn the lessons of MLS, the continued lessons of MLS, but also just that gap between you know an MLR and the top competition in the world, Premiership Super Rugby. The cost differential is not nearly. MLS to a premiership, right? That's just not a, so learning the lessons, but also just the ability to kind of be the best of the best in our sport is not out of the realm. Like that is, that is a possibility, the, the, right? The difficulty and the cost to do that on in yeah, soccer would be the, the, enormous. The, those parallels, that's where people have to kind of have that intellectual honesty as well, right? The, 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 um, the the football comparisons or the soccer comparisons have to stop at a certain kind of you know value level, right? Yeah. But from a sen- but from a sense that yeah. we we can close the gap to make a profitable sport and an international sport it is absolutely there um, by learning a lot of these lessons and, and you've got to get into the the whys and the hows of that and it's not a it's not a mutually exclusive conversation to those that say it's bottom up or top or top down, right? It's both. And, you know, those, the, those have, have put into our structures and used some of the leverage that we're now starting to come. This is not hard to understand, but we are potentially entering a golden or the American rugby decade, right? Which will culminate in a 28 Olympics, a 29 women's world cup and a 31 men's world cup you know, to now, and it's not, oh, aha, it's not, and I told you so, meaning not me, but other people, there's a lot of grind, and a lot of hard work yeah. that we'll, we'll take. And it has to be people coming together and kind of dropping the, and, and understand each other's strengths and weaknesses and go from there. Yeah. And AEG is very well positioned as a sports entertainment expert and facilities operator and a foothold in LA to really help be a part of guiding that, you know, I mean, like you said, Olympics, 28 LA, 29 women's world cup, 31 men's world cup is, is, is a pretty stellar place to be. But talking about the world cup in particular, for that to be commercially successful, we're talking about averaging almost 50,000 attendees per match over how many matches, you know, a hundred matches or whatever it is. Where is that? Where, where's that audience going to come from? You got to assume you know, even in 10 years, we got to get a lot of that has to be international travel. So a third to a half, right? Potentially. So again, now we're talking about 25 plus thousand people at all of these matches um, that are Americans, North Americans that are really excited about this experience. So we've got a decade effectively, but a, a little less if we're looking at that Olympics and everything else to 
new eyeballs that are educated on the sport, right? And we don't have the luxury of what soccer had for that 94 World Cup or 98 Women's World Cup, where you have 5 million participants who've, who've experienced it or are experiencing that sport at the same time. So how do we shortchange that? How do we, how do we, you, you were the grind, but what does that actually yeah, look like? Um, Starting with the, the conversation that, you know, every match is a home match. We have such diversity and so many people living in this country Great point. from those 20 countries or on the women's side, 12, give or take, you know, where that evolves to, um, that you, you, you're, you have naturally have a, a, a lot of, and then America is so accessible to the world, you know, cheap mostly, you know, in order to get to comparatively to a lot of places in the world. So you have the, the, the incumbent fan, you know, or interested, the international traveler. And then, but we have such a corporate connectivity to sport is where I think that that that's what changes the dynamic. And today we're in this world of an evolving, make a difference, create, create change, Put, put the right people on the right seats. It literally, you know, so we're company days out and engagement but in those communities by many, many, many brands, you know, um, I, I think engages those, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 seats that may or may not, you know, be the ones, you know, for the some of those, I don't want to say lesser games, but, you know, less brand structure. There, there's four or five other ways from school participation programs, other other things that can supercharge that funnel that we're talking about. They can be engaged now. So, I, I don't have any any doubt um, that we we would get to that those numbers to, to not just to prophesize on this thing, but to actually legitimize you know that 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 language. It's not hard to get to those numbers. Um, I don't, I don't say that with a pinch of salt, but it's not hard from a from a planning perspective because yeah. of the, you know, the, the the way that companies and communities engage these types of activities, you know, in the United States. Yeah, if, if there is a plan, right? And that's the key, the word planning and, and, and cohesion and all the other parts. And on the field, like for the 31 Men's World Cup, Average age is, you know, 25, roughly speaking. So that's, that's our under 16s right now. So what are we doing with our under 16s? You know, when you look at the Women's World Cup, but you're talking about under 18s right now, what are we doing? So, so they can be as competitive as possible in, in, in 29 and 31, and of course the Olympics in 28, which is really we're effectively in that cycle now. The cycle of this last Olympic group, I mean, that started in 2012, really. You know, that's a, the, the Olympic cycles are kind of a 10-year phenomenon well, to two quads. But well, speaking sorry. about getting a little no, I, 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 go I, ahead. To, to, no. to put a little bit of a, uh, you know, a uh, exclamation point on the end of that question about World Cup development and how all the stuff we've already talked about goes there is that you have to balance the value of a tackle, meaning the sport. What does it take to play the game at a high level? What does it take to just start a club? What does it take to sustain that stuff? The, the, the value of that with the value of a ticket, right? How, how hard is it to sell a ticket yeah. today? You know, what, what does that look like? What's the commercial capacity? And what are the things that need to be changed? The balance is between those two things, right? And you need executives that are experts at one or the other, if not both, right? And, and 
the perception mm-hmm. perception of the, of the balance of what is international, what is domestic, and fusing those together. So it, it'll take a team of people. We're in, we're in one of the best team sports out there. It'll take a team of people, not individuals from just world rugby, not individuals that are just from USA rugby, or it'll take a team of experts to come together to write that plan out. Absolutely. And to reduce friction in order to participate both as a fan and on the field. Yeah. And the, what is the cost of acquisition per fan? You know, and you look on average, it's about 70 bucks, right? And it, 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 that adds up very, very quickly. When we're talking about millions of people. So speaking of this is TV, you know what you're a, you're an analyst on NBC sports. You do great with the premiership and a bunch of other rugby things. Um, so the question is twofold. How's that experience going for you? How do you prepare for it? And then two, what's the future of TV? You know, we, we, we've seen NBC go to Peacock and uh, a lot less cable linear um, opportunities there and perhaps a lot more on direct to consumer. So kind yeah, of twofold um, question. It's kind of funny. I, I got two screens in front of me. I got the television behind me. You know, I got a iPad right here. I got my phone right here, you know. So I think everyone's just going to realize that we're, we're, the consumption is much more easier and it's, and it's going away from, well, it's just screens, right? It, it's how do you, how do you power that? And, and that screen typically was, you know, cable linear TV, right? Obviously now screens are screens. You can plug anything in and it's a smart device. So the, the evolution uh, of how we consume things um, is radically changed and changing every day, you know, in front of us. And so, but you still have as a rights holder, MLR, USA Rugby, Six Nations, you still have a, a, a challenge because you have to balance value and awareness. How do we get as much value from what I'm doing, but I need, I need this awareness to, for my partners, for my brand, for that, you know, to, to, to rate, to raise it up. So you have to find that balance. So sometimes, you know, for underserviced or undervalued or underdeveloped people, you don't have as many choices, right? So you have to bite the bullet and kind of balance the, in, within the two worlds. And that's where MLR is, right? You know, it's got entrepreneurs, it's got enough capital, you know, and we, we just to, to try to balance yes. that to, to put itself out there on a linear and and more consumable digital, but also spun up the rugby network and and offering it for free for those that to get out there, so you can start building that. So you have to find a way to to balance it. You know, sometimes that means paying for it all up front. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you slip into or trip into things. What where I think that we're missing the trick in America. And look, I've been in the middle of, of negotiating a lot of stuff. So the analyst side is almost like the, the yeah, the fun part. The it fun keeps part. you relevant and we can talk about that stuff. But the, the negotiation of World Cups and Six Nations and premierships and 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 TV rights that TV relate right. to collegiate championships or sevens championships and actual events, you know, are sometimes eye of the beholder, you know, and sometimes – where they where they could really be leveraged, and this is ultimately what what Soccer United marketing and what FIFA and USA Soccer did, which was leveraging the rugby sorry the Soccer World Cup rights, you know, in order to facilitate kind of a broader media play for domestic rights in America. But where 
and MLS guys will tell you this, where they have got it, got it wrong and are and over the last four or five years are starting to rectify that is that isolating your league to the sport, meaning if your league is perceived as a lesser valued league and everybody out there will say that all the owners and all the people that are playing in MLS will say that, look, it's not a, it's the top five, six, seven leagues in the world are, are, are better com- competitively. Right. But you can't you can't yeah. also have five, six, seven leagues come into your country, Premier League, Premier, Premier League, Syria, all this stuff, and have a higher media value. Why is that? Why you know, yeah. not not just collectively, individually higher. Why why is that? And what's the perception right. of soccer to where you know I, I get people turning up to my stadiums, my values are going up. But my media, my sponsorship, and other things are slagging behind. And what they identified was that it's not just the league; it's the it's the output of that league, which is the national team. If the national team has yeah. an upwardly mobile, and we have Americans that are uh, thought of as some of the best in the world, you know, and we get more U.S. players playing in the uh, M- MLR excuse me, MLS, that was a faux pas, but that's the same thing, right? If we get, if we get, uh, if yeah. we get that, then our value will go up. And so all of a sudden you've, they changed their recruiting four or five teams started high schools, you know, now that gets into the one right. single sport dimension, right? But you're Special getting into vision. a place yeah, yeah, where, right. you know, there's so, so much dynamics that the, the value of your, of your media, the value of your league, starts going up. And so it gives you the ability. So it's leveraging the with other partners, whether they be USA Rugby, whether they be international leagues, as well as understanding the value of your league and how you can make it more valuable, you know, and then therefore raising the value up. Those are all the dynamics that go into, um, you know, how do you build a you know, media strategy? Yeah, brilliant. Very, very well said. And just said that it's all connected. You can't be, you can't have the worst national team and you can't um, not develop for a high quality product today, you know, if you want it to, to grow as fast as we all want it to grow. We're going to jump into rapid fire real quick, if you don't mind. I'm just going to ask a question, whatever comes to mind. Have you taken a bath in the uh, Roman I have. Bath? I got married in the Roman baths and and luckily they do, okay. they no longer do the baths after the games, but we had actual big baths in the changing rooms afterwards, which is borderline disgusting. Yeah. Sounds crazy. Uh, scariest guy you've ever well, played against? Um, we talked about, I had one concussion in rugby and it was my last in- international game against France and Cheval, who looks a lot like Ebner uh, there, but yeah, um, yeah. yeah. yeah the, the, there's a lot of, uh, I would say the guy that it was hardest to play against and he wasn't like a ferocious guy was uh, Richard Hill that played for England played for Saracens, just had this ability to play the game at, at a impactful level. Probably most people don't, yeah, don't realize. Consistently. Yeah. Best city to travel away to and play games. I mean, that experience you talked about in the Heineken Cup final sounds pretty epic. Yeah. I mean, any other, I was privileged you know, to play in a, in, a, in a rugby city, in a Roman city, in a world heritage city in Bath. It's, you know, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Can't but, beat uh, it. Yeah. 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 There's some great places. Um, the, the best USA rugby logo or the new logo? What, what do you pick? What's your, um, what's your I think, I think that the national team, the, the logos can, can change and evolve. I think that the national team should play with the Eagle. 
you know, that's the national symbol. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. And simplicity and everybody understands. And then it stands out. You know, that's it's brilliant. Last question, my favorite question. If you were in my position and running the Free Jacks day to day, what would you be focusing on? Well, the it, it's most people don't realize that Alex Magazine probably has more the, the burn a saddle, the pain in the saddle is it's just it, it's just kind of <laughs> the the how do I balance a playing squad and the culture of keeping that team together, locked in, smart, evolving with acquiring fans and partners. And I think that, um, that if I were you, um, I would seek as much information to that balance, you know, to where I knew how much time and energy I need to spend each day, you know, on each of those, you know, and, and, do I have the right people, you know, working yeah. with me that that have that same that same work work balance? And that's that that's that that tackle and ticket conversation we had before. Exactly, audience yeah. and then the product, right? And just making sure that those two are uh, synergistic and that they want to come back and they want to help each other out. Brilliant, Dan. It's so great to catch up as always. Thanks, folks, for listening to the latest episode of Full Contact CEO. Stay tuned for a slate of exciting guests in the world of sports, business, media, and, of course, rugby. Don't forget to subscribe and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all our latest updates. Bye.